The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I'm going to say something that you have probably never he- heard a Baptist preacher ever say. And you probably will never hear me say again. All right? I want you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. I'm serious. Close your eyes. Come on. And imagine this with me. Okay? Imagine that I'm telling you this from a first-hand experience. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now open your eyes. What do you think it would be like to be John at that moment? That comes from Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 to 11. What do you think it would be like to be John at that moment? Enraptured in a vision, getting a peek behind the curtain, if you will, at the glory of God. 
What do you think it would feel like? I mean, inside you, what would be going on? What, what would the feeling be there? Like deep inside you, what would that feeling be like? What would it be like if you were to live there eternally? Right there in that scene, in the glory of God. What, what do you think it would be like to be there? If this had happened to you, and you found one of your friends, you know, on the street or something like that, or at work or something, and you pulled them aside, and you're, you're telling them this story that happened to you. This, this is what I saw. This is what it was, was like. And you're explaining to them the feelings, you're explaining to them all the things. Let's assume for the moment that they believe every word of what you told them. What do you think? that person would give to experience what you experienced? What do you think that they would give? If they believed this really was, and they, and they could somehow give something so that they could experience the same thing, what do you think they would give? In our passage this morning, I, I want us to consider what the author of Hebrews says in verse 3 about the Son. Just in verse 3. We read verses 1 to 4, but just at the beginning of verse 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's all we're going to look at this morning. Is just those two phrases. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And, and I want us to see what that's actually worth. That that has incredible value. And in fact, that truth right there, that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature is a big deal. Has always been a big deal, but in our world right now is a very big deal, if we understand it. I want us to remember first the context of the book that we're looking at, this is the opening of the book of Hebrews. It's sort of, you might think of it as the opening argument to what the author is going to do throughout the book. And it sort of sets a precedent for what is going to be accomplished in all of the pages. But the author is setting up a contrast right at the very beginning between the way God has revealed Himself in the past, and he says... He, in the past, He has spoken to us through the prophets. Through Old Testament prophets. Versus the way that He has revealed Himself now. The way He has spoken to us in what He says is these last days. And He says that is through the Son. And, and the author's intention is to really say to us, if you weigh the two next to each other, speaking through the prophets before versus speaking through the Son now, Speaking through the Son is better in every way. And so right here at the very beginning, in these first few verses, he's just going to go through really quickly the ways in which it's better that he's speaking through the Son to us now. So now he has to set out to tell us exactly why the revelation of the Son is his final, it's his ultimate, it's his best way that he could speak to us. So last week we saw that He gave us the first two reasons 
why the revelation of the Son is superior. And that was that the Son is the heir of all things. And the world was created through Him. So, the reason why it's fitting that in these last days, He would speak to us finally and ultimately through His Son is because the creation that God is speaking to was made through the Son. And it was created for the Son. In other words, He owns it all. It's all His. That's the reason that it's better that He speaks through the Son. Unlike the prophets who came before, when they speak, they're delivering the mail. They're carrying the letter to you. I didn't write this letter. This is a letter written by somebody else, and I'm here to tell you what the letter says. But when the Son speaks, He's the writer of the letter. He's coming to say it to you personally. He's the owner of the universe. So you can sense that that means that He has more inherent value and worth. It's better that the writer of the letter shows up and tells you himself what he wants to say. He has more authority. What he says goes. And so, in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, when we find promises that are made to us that Christ has even yet to fulfill, like He's coming back, we understand that to mean then not just simply take my word for it, which there is some faith that we have to take His word for it, but it's His way of saying, I, the author of the universe, the one through whom all of this was created, the one for whom it was created, I am going to personally see to it that this happens. That has more weight, doesn't it? That promise has more value coming from the author. So that brings us to our place this morning. Now, of all the Christian doctrines that are out there, if I went around the room and I said, what is the one that intimidates you the most to tell your friends, to talk about, to explain, most people are going to say the doctrine of the Trinity is the hardest. It's the hardest to comprehend. It's the hardest to wrap our mind around. It's the hardest to explain to others. Now the word Trinity means that God exists at the same time as one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is at the same time one and three. And that's intimidating for Christians. As you can imagine, as we think about explaining that to other people, it's very difficult to wrap our minds around. How can someone be both one and three? It's difficult, it's intimidating, but it doesn't have to be. Now, I'm not pretending that I've got all the answers to every issue with the Trinity all figured out and understand it perfectly. Nor am I saying that when you leave here, you're going to walk out and you're going to sit down with your friend and you're like, have I got an explanation for you? And you're just going to be able to lay it on them without any pause or hesitation at all. In fact, the Trinity isn't even really the main focus of the sermon, but it is a byproduct. When it comes to the Trinity, the reality for Christians is you don't have to say more than what the Bible says. 
You can simply say what the Bible says and thereby explain it. It's as simple as reading the verses and taking the words seriously. Some of your fears over explaining doctrine like the Trinity with friends of yours or saying the wrong thing or perhaps even understanding it yourself, all of that sometimes can be alleviated by simply just reading the words on the page and taking them seriously. So I hope this morning that if we understand what's being said here about the Son in these just two little phrases, this simple little part of a sentence, of a verse, that we'll be more comfortable affirming what the Bible says truly about the Son and understanding why it's actually really important for us that we struggle to wrap our mind around this. So in our passage this morning, we have two statements about the Son that help us better understand who He is and why it's through Him that God has finally and ultimately spoken. And these two statements, they really work together. They're going to complement one another. So we're going to take each one of them and we're going to try to understand them and see why they're important for us to comprehend. The first thing that He says about the Son is that He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's point number one. So the author of Hebrews starts off by giving us this, this metaphor. that The sun is the radiance of the glory of God. It's a metaphor for understanding the sun. He calls him the radiance of God's glory. So in, in other words, the sun radiates God's glory essentially like brightness from a light source. Alright? Now, I want to caution us before we go any further. I would discourage you in any of your attempts to explain the Trinity to one of your friends, to your kids, even as you think about it yourself. I would discourage you from making metaphors about the Trinity. Because as we'll see by the end of the sermon, all of them at some point are going to fail. They're all going to fall flat. There are plenty who have tried to illustrate the Trinity by using this example here in the book of Hebrews of a light source and its beam going to you. And they'll say about the Trinity, well, you know, the Trinity's kind of like a light. You've got the source of the light, and then you've got the beam emanating from the light, and then you've got the heat that comes with the light. Something like maybe the Holy Spirit would be like the beam, maybe. And so you've got, there it is, there's the Trinity. He's like a light. You've got the source being God the Father. You've got the beam being God the Son. And you've got the heat being the Holy Spirit. And, and that's what they take from this verse. But in that illustration, you see the, the light source then becomes the creator of the light beam and the origin of the heat. So that makes the source, or the Father in this case, being the creator of the Son and the Spirit. And that is absolutely not what is being said here about the Son at all. That's not even the illustration as it's properly understood what he's saying here. 
And you can tell that if you just pay very close attention to the actual words that he says here in this verse. Do you notice that he does not say, He is the radiance of God. He doesn't say that. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's different than saying He is the radiance of God. And that tells you that He's not trying to illustrate for you how the Son relates to the Father. Well, the Father is like a light source, you see, and the Son radiates from Him. And that's how the two are one and the same. That's not what He's saying. He's explaining how the Son relates to the glory of God. To the magnificence, to the worth of God. And about that, he says the Son is the Father's glory's radiance. Okay. But what does that mean? What does it mean that He is the radiance of God's glory? The S-U-N, Son, outside, if you were to walk outside, is, last time I checked, 93 million miles from the earth. Now, when you walk outside, especially on a bright day, but it could even be a cloudy day, if you're to look up into the sky, you're going to have to close your eyes, squint really tightly, put your hand up in front of your face maybe, or even put on sunglasses so that your eyes don't burn at its sight. The reason that you have to shield your eyes from the sun is because of its radiance. So in other words, radiance, for our purposes now, this is, not a, this is not a science lesson, okay? But for our purposes now, and for the author of Hebrews' purposes, the radiance is what makes the light source visible to you. So the very fact that you can see it with your eyes is due to its radiance. So the point that is being made here about God's glory, meaning His brilliance, His worth, His holiness, His enormity, His majesty, literally His weight, the point that's being made here about that is that God's glory would be hidden from us if not from the, for the sun, the S-O-N. The sun is what takes the glory of God, which would otherwise not be seen by you. You would be blind to it. He takes that glory and He makes it visible to you. The sun is the radiance of God's glory so that we can actually see it. Otherwise, what would happen to you? Even if you look back at the passage that I read at the very beginning of this, when John is standing before the throne there in Revelation, you notice what he says and what he doesn't say. He, he says he's seeing around the throne and he sees gems and light beams and all these kinds of rainbows and things like that. But he doesn't describe what God looked like, did he? He will describe what the sun looks like in the next chapter, but he doesn't describe what God looks like. It's almost as if he's standing there in front of the throne and he just gets this mixture of light that he can't quite see behind. And he's enamored by it. 
He's overwhelmed by it. So here, the author of Hebrews is saying the sun is the radiance of the glory of God, namely that we might see it. He is God's glory that we can actually behold. We can actually look on it. Listen to how the Gospel of John describes this same idea in John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying something similar in this text to what our text is saying, that in the Son is a peculiar kind of glory. In the Son is a glory that reveals the glory of the Father. It's full of grace and truth. And guess what? We got to behold it. We can actually lay eyes on it. We didn't have to do this. We could take it in with eyes wide open. We got to see it. The Son has revealed the Father's glory in such a way that He didn't blind us, but we could actually behold it. But here's where the Bible goes one step further. John and Hebrews says He's the radiance of the glory of God that we could actually see, we could lay eyes on the glory. But then Paul takes it, as Paul usually does, just one notch further in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And he says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's creation, Genesis, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. So, it's actually one tick beyond that. It's not even just that Jesus radiated God's glory and just showed that to us. But He also went one step further so that He actually shone in our hearts so that we might be able to understand what we're seeing and actually like it. You see that? So it's not just that He said, here's what God's glory looks like. And we said, okay, well I can check that off my bucket list. He said, here's what God's glory looks like, and now I'm going to give you a taste of it so that you'll like it. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God because of Christ, because He is the radiance of the glory of God, we can not only lay eyes on God, but we actually love Him for who He is. Now that goes even further. So, then ask the question, why has God chosen finally and ultimately to speak through the Son? Why is there no better revelation that we're looking for than the Son? A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a book that was written that said, hey, I know the Bible is God's Word. I know it talks about Him. I know it's the way that we can be changed and all that, but I want more. Why, that's a terrible way 
of thinking, even a heretical way of thinking, why is it that we shouldn't look for any other revelation and there can be no other greater revelation? Why is it that we turn to His Word Sunday after Sunday to be reminded of who Jesus is and to hear what He has commanded us to do? Why? The answer is because He alone is the radiance of the glory of God by coming to understand who He is. We come to understand and appreciate more of who God is. There is no better access to truth. There is no better access to truth that you can have than to turn to God's Word, to open it, to read it, to hear it, to understand it, and to learn about the Son, to learn from the Son, and to learn what it is that He has commanded us to do. There is no better access to truth than that. There is a battle for truth going on all over the world right now, at this very moment. Everyone wants their news to stick to the facts, don't they? Don't they want to just, you want to turn on the TV or, or whatever, go to wherever your news source is, and you want to just hear truthfully what's happening, right? Give it to me straight, Doc. Just tell me factually what's happening. And yet it seems like everywhere you turn, no matter where it is, instead of getting just straight facts, you get this sort of subtle mixture of opinion you get this little spin, you get this little slant, maybe you even just get outright deception. And you, you may not even know it's deception. It's just right there. What an irony. But even more ironical is the fact that we live in what is called the information age. Now, no one told us that like 30 years ago, hey, eventually information is going to come at you so fast and from so many different places that it will be nearly impossible to try to separate truth from falsehood. So we have so much information that we are complete idiots. How ironic is that? You almost laugh to keep from crying. But, but Paul tells us why this is the case. He tells us why in Romans 1, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do, do you see what he's saying here? I mean, you could probably print that in a newspaper today. I mean, they wouldn't run it. But you could, that's, it might as well be about society right now. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So, so then let's ask the question, what value does the Son have to us in our day? What is the value of Him being the radiance of the glory of God? He has made God's glory visible to us. And we have 
seen His glory. We can look on the pages of Scripture and we can recognize what He has done. We can evaluate the claims of history. We can hear about His resurrection and His death and His atoning work. And we can see all that He has accomplished. And we can recognize that He is from the Father. And we can see that He is full of grace and truth. That He can shine in our hearts, giving us eyes to see the truth of the Gospel. And we can recognize that everything else in our world is intermixed with lies. And only here is actual truth. The Son has been revealed to us. He has, because He has been revealed to us, He's changed the game altogether. It changed everything about everything. So He came down and not only demonstrated the worthiness of God, the worth of God, the fact that life is really about worshiping God. He not only showed us that invisible form, but He opened our eyes to the actual truth of what our life is about without any mixture of error. He opened our eyes to see the meaning of life, that it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He opened our eyes to the way to obtain eternal life, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. At which point, when He does that, how does that not change everything about the way that you live? At the point where you come to Christ truly, and you see Him for who He really is, and the value that He actually brings. When you see the glory of God as John does before the throne, when you're transfixed there and you say, this is Him in Jesus, this is who it is. What aspect of your life remains unchanged? There's nothing that remains unchanged. So the fact that He is the radiance of the glory of God Matters in every way to our life. But why else is the Son, the ultimate and final one through whom the Father has spoken? Second point, he says, because he is God in the flesh. All right. Put your thinking caps on. You ready? Put your thinking shoes on, too, because we've got a lot to walk through. All right? In the second part of the verse, he says the Son is the exact imprint of His nature. Now here again, you're sitting down with your friend over coffee, and they say, what is this whole Trinity thing about? I don't, I, you know, I don't understand what this whole Trinity thing about. When you go to the words of Scripture and you say He is the exact imprint of His nature, if you pause and think about that phrase, you can better understand and even explain what we mean when we talk about the Son being one with the Father. First, think of the words, both the words, imprint and nature. He is the exact imprint of His nature. The idea of the word here used for imprint is a reproduction. Jesus is an exact reproduction. And the word for nature, of God's nature, is the exact imprint of God's nature. Nature, the word nature is the idea of essence. It is what makes God 
really God? What is his essence? What makes him God? That's his essence. So when you put these two ideas together, what the author is saying of the Son is that he is an exact representation of God's real being. That the Son is an exact representation of God's real being. Now, there is no stronger way in any human language that you can say Jesus is God than that. There's just no stronger use of words that you can employ to say Jesus is God than what he says here in this phrase. In fact, it's even stronger and better than saying Jesus is God. Because then you might take the Son and replace the Father with the Son. This is also unlike anything else we have in this world. It's not like anything else we have in this world. People tell me all the time that I am the spitting image of my father. That I look just like him. But this is different than saying I am an exact representation of his nature. Of his real being. What's being said about the Son here is not that He merely looks like the Father. When some people attempt to illustrate the relationship between the Father and the Son, or the Holy Spirit, throw Him in there too, they often will use common objects in the world around them to try to illustrate this. And people might say something like, well, the Trinity is like an egg. You see, you have... The shell, which is like the Father, and then you have the white, which is like the Son, and you have the yolk, which is like the Holy Spirit. But let's put that to the test in just this verse. That's what I mean. Just use the words of Scripture and put that to the test of the illustration. Is the egg white the exact representation of the egg's real essence? No. Is the shell? No. Is the yolk? No. Each one of these aspects of the egg are only part of the egg's real being. If you were over at my house and I were to say, would you like some eggs? And you said, why yes, I'd love some eggs. And I were to go to the skillet and I were to crack eggshell, break it apart, dump the contents into the skillet, take the shell, put it on a plate, and put the plate in front of you, you would say, what is this? You have not given me an egg? Like I expected to be given an egg, you've given me eggshell. See, when it comes down to it, you can't properly illustrate with any real-world object what's being said here about the Son. Because what's being talked about is the nature of God. It doesn't relate to the things that you're going to find in nature. Is the Father the same person as the Son? No! 
That's why they're called Father and Son. And Holy Spirit, for that matter. Is the Son the same person as the Father? No. So there's a difference between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is a difference. However, though they are different in person, they are the exact same in their essential nature. Now, do you understand that? No, that's fine. You may not have ever seen that before, ever, ever, ever. None of us have. But can we say they are different in person, but they are the exact same in their essential nature? Yes. See, about me, even though I'm the spitting image of my Father, I cannot say, if you have seen me, you have seen my Father. I can't say that. My Father is much older, much worse looking, and much more bald. An egg yolk can't say, if you've seen me, you've seen an egg. But in Scripture, Jesus is petitioned by His disciple, Philip, in John 14, verses 8 and 9. And He says this, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What Jesus is saying about himself is not, I am the spitting image of my Father. In fact, God the Father is spirit. And Jesus is standing before Philip in a body. So that is a big difference right there, right? He's not saying, I'm like the egg yolk. I'm the best part of the Father. I'm the part you really want. That's not what he's saying either. He's saying, when you are looking at me, you are looking at the Father. You are not missing out on any aspect of the Father's essential being when you look at me. There's nothing that you're lacking. This is why when the early church set out to squash heresies like Arianism, which says Jesus and the Spirit were created beings, when they set to squash those heresies, they had to describe Jesus in this way. And they go to great lengths. You can see this. This is going to be on the screen behind you. It's part of the Nicene Creed. He says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one essence with the Father. Got it? Yes. That is what we're saying about Jesus. The doctrine of the Trinity is intimidating, to be sure, for Christians. Because you can't just sit down with your friends and you can't say, well, see, it's like this real-world object over here. Let me go grab this egg and I'll show you what the Trinity is like. There aren't any illustrations like that that work, so it's intimidating. But the doctrine of the Trinity is not something you see that brainiacs cooked up in a lab somewhere. But they just said, I got an idea. Let's throw this into the mix and make Christians memorize this and really throw them for a loop. It's the only way to describe what Scripture is actually depicting. When we come to the Scriptures, we, we see here the Son being described as the glory of God incarnate. 
He is the exact nature of God in person. So the Gospel of John says in John 1, 1 1-2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Wait, wait, wait. So he was with God. Yes. He was God? Yes. How can you be with him and him at the same time? The sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's the only way. So when we then ask, why is the author of Hebrews presenting this to us here? Why is this his opening argument? Remember, so far he has said that the Son is the heir of all things. Meaning that all this is for him. It was created through him. Meaning he owns it all. But now, he's adding to this By saying the reason that God has spoken to us in these last days by the Son is because the Son is God. That's why. Why is the Son ultimate? Why is it such a bad thing that I would look at His Word and I would say, ah, but I want more. Because in the Son, we have seen God. And if that's not enough for you, I got nothing else. That's it. But really think about what you're saying there. Can you imagine being John, standing before the throne, seeing all that he sees in Revelation 4 and 5, and saying, Eh. Can you imagine that? In fact, I would say you won't do that. The most ardent atheist might have in his heart, well, if I get up there, I'll give God a piece of my mind. I promise you, you won't. For one, because he owns all the pieces of your mind. But for two, every person in Scripture that ever gets a glimpse stands before him silent. So can you imagine saying about this God that we're preaching about and teaching about and reading about? I've seen better things on TV. For the Christian, we preach the good news and what separates the good news of Jesus Christ from every other news out there that you might hear is that we are preaching God incarnate. God became flesh. So your kids might occasionally ask you, as my kids will often ask me, how do we know? that we're worshiping the right God when everyone else is worshiping the wrong God? How do we know that that's true? How can we say to the Hindu or to the Muslim or to the who, whatever religion is out there, 
How can we say about them, hey, what you're worshiping is false, but what we're worshiping is true? It's amazing that kids can drill right down. They see through it all, and they kind of go, this is what you're saying. The gospel message is an exclusive claim. It's saying not only that this is the greatest of all gods, it's saying this is the only God out there. There are no others. And Christ, who has died and rose again, if you are not in Him, it is an eternity in hell. That is what the gospel is saying. And kids have a way of going, okay, well, how do I know that that's the right one and everyone else is wrong? How do I know that this exclusive claim is true? And the answer is right here in Hebrews 1, 3. Because the Son, who radiates the glory of God, became incarnate and dwelt among us And He is God, and we have beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And not only that, but He became a man in history. There was a point in time where He took on flesh and He dwelt among us. And then He went to the cross. Between the time where He took on flesh and went to the cross, He did all kinds of things. He walked on water. He opened the eyes of the blind. He multiplied loaves and fish. He raised the dead. He calmed seas. And all of these events were reported by his disciples. But then, the greatest miracle of all was that he went to the cross, and there on the cross suffered the wrath of God for you. He died, and three days later, he rose again. Game changer. All of a sudden... None of those miracles that He did can be explained any other way than that He is God. And now, son, daughter, now that I have read the testimonies of those who have gone before me and who witnessed it and who saw Him and who testified to His resurrection, now that I have read and become convinced about their testimony that it is true and seeing how they suffered and they died for what they believe that Jesus rose again, how can I not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And once I do, now I know This is true, and everything else is false. So what value does it have to us in this day and age that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature? It means for us that God became incarnate, that He saved us, And that when you, unbeliever, when you, child, when you behold Him and believe in Him and see Him for who He really is, then what do you see? You see the glory of God. You see grace and you see truth. Something the rest of this world can never offer you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We ask that you make this word real to us. That you open our hearts and our mind to believe. 
that if there be any in this room who are unbelieving, that you would demonstrate truth to them, that you would show them who Jesus really is, that you would give their hearts an appropriate evaluation of his worth. That it would be like what John experiences. That their heart, their eyes, their spiritual eyes can actually see Jesus for who He is. They can see Him as their Savior, as the revealer of your glory, as the incarnate Word, full of grace and truth. And that they would run to you in repentance and faith. I pray for the rest of us too that all whose hearts do believe but need encouragement from day to day that we would look on your word here and say I believe help our unbelief we pray in Jesus name amen thanks for listening if you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church we'd love for you to visit our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.